In the Gospel of John, Jesus of Nazareth says these words up on the screen. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, if you know when Abraham lived and when Jesus lived, that sentence on the screen does not seem to fit any timeline that makes sense, right? Because here we are in the year of our Lord, 2022, and Abraham lived 4,000 years ago, and then Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. So that timeline is hard for us to understand. 4,000 years ago, Abraham lived Jesus lived 2,000 years ago. How could Jesus say that this man, who was long dead, rejoiced at the thought of seeing his day? We never read the name of Jesus in the book of Genesis. We never hear God say, Abraham, in 20 centuries, I will send the Messiah to the Israelites. Because Abraham would say, who are the Israelites? Right? This timeline doesn't seem to make sense. Jesus' audience was very confused, too. They say to Abraham, or to Jesus, you say Abraham saw your day, you're not even 50 years old. Do the math, Jesus, that doesn't make sense. You're 1,950 years too young. So, as we finish this series on Abraham, I think it's really important to make the strongest possible connection between these two men. Because some people will talk about Abraham as if he's the founder of one religion and Jesus is the founder of another but what we want to find out this morning is that these two stories are actually one united narrative. So the question for us today is, where is Jesus in the book of Genesis? Where is our Savior in the story of Abraham? Because if we answer those questions, I think we can understand this very cryptic response. Truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Okay. I think Jesus shows up in the story of Abraham in three ways. And because I'm a preacher, I have to use alliteration on slides, okay? <laughs> Jesus shows up in prophecy, in patterns, and in person, okay? We're going to go through each of these ways that Jesus shows up in uh, the, the book of Genesis. And I don't want this sermon to just be informational. I think sermons have to have good news. So I'm just going to start with the good news at the very beginning. The same God who created this story, who got all these things kicked off 4,000 years ago in Abraham, entered the story himself. Christianity is unique in this sense. We believe that the God that we worship, the God who created the entire universe, became one of us. It's like the author entered his own book. The director of the play is also the leading actor. Okay, so we're going to go through and see why this is such a Good news. Now, the word prophecy, which is where we'll begin, is often misunderstood. People picture crystal balls or people think of Harry Potter, but biblical prophecies are so much more than that. They are promises. And we've done this over and over again, so I bet you're sick and tired of it. We'll do it one last time just to end this series off. Okay, God promised Abraham a name, a land, a son, and a blessing. Okay? Now, we, we've seen so far that all of these are initially fulfilled in the book of Genesis. But we also see, as we read through Scripture, that they are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Let's talk for a second about the promise of a great name. If you were to ask any Jew living today, they would know the name of Abraham. 
But one of the most amazing things about human history is that now Gentiles, non-Jews, know the name of Abraham. And they don't even just know that name. They claim him as a father of faith. This is amazing. The father of the Jews is now famous to billions of non-Jews because of who? Because of Jesus. God has made Abraham's name great, especially to people who are not related to him. Jesus also fulfills, ultimately fulfills, the promise of the land. Now, you might wonder, how did Jesus fulfill that promise, right? The Romans own the land when Jesus is alive. But I think he fulfilled this promise by extending it to the whole world. In one of his letters, the Apostle Paul is talking about Abraham. He says that he's the father of both the circumcised and the uncircumcised. And then Paul writes this fascinating line. He says, Abraham received the promise that he would be, and let's read that last phrase all together that's underlined, heir of the world. Now, if you think back to Genesis 12, that might seem odd, right? Wasn't Abraham just promised that particular plot of land? Well, in Jesus, we see that God has his eyes on something bigger than just that land. If you go to his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit what? The earth. Not just the particular plot of land, the entire earth. He sends his disciples where? Go and make disciples of all nations. Okay? Jesus has fulfilled this promise of the land by expanding it. God also promised a son, and we talked about how it took 25 years for Isaac to come along, but I think that God's son, who comes in the line of Abraham, is an even greater fulfillment of the promised son. And finally, God promises to bless all of the nations through him. And I think this one is so obvious. The greatest spiritual blessing to all Gentiles from Abraham's family is Jesus Christ. So even though we can read the book of Genesis and see that all four of these are fulfilled initially, if you keep reading the whole Bible, you'll see how they become even greater in Jesus Christ. Now, how is Jesus present beyond just prophecies, but also present in patterns? Now, if you've been here for the past couple of years, you know that I love connecting the Old and New Testament. And I think if you look at the details and contours of Abraham's life, you will see too many similarities to Jesus to just be a coincidence. We know at the beginning of Abraham's story that he's called to leave his father's house. And he leaves all that comfort and familiarity behind and he goes to the land of Canaan. He obeys. But for years, decades of his life, he has no home of his own that he possessed. Now, once he arrives, unfortunately, there's a famine, and so he immediately has to travel down to Egypt just to find some fertile land. When he comes back, God gives him a sign of his promises called circumcision, and God makes a covenant with him. Now, if you look at the life of Abraham and then set alongside it the life of Jesus, you can see so many similarities. Jesus is called to leave his father's house in heaven. He is born in Bethlehem, which is in the land of Canaan. There are so many times where we, we find out that Jesus had no place to lay his head, just like his wandering forefather. We know at the beginning of his life that Herod wanted to kill him. And so his family had to flee their home country. And what country did they go to? Egypt. Of all places to seek safety, they go to Egypt, just like their father Abraham. 
He circumcised like all males in his tribe, and he makes a covenant on the last day, the last night of his life. I just think that this is so amazing. Sometimes we don't realize all the correspondences between his, his forefather's life and his own. And when you realize who Jesus is, this is such an incredible truth that God called out to Abraham, told him to sacrifice all these things. Abraham obeyed and actually went, and then God decided to kind of retrace his steps. These are not two different stories. They're one connected narrative. You cannot split them up. Now, this morning we read Genesis chapter 14, and I think that there is a pattern here that just cannot be denied. But it's not a similarity between Jesus and Abraham, but Jesus and a different character. After Abraham wins a battle, this mysterious figure named Melchizedek appears. His name means king of righteousness. He offers bread and wine. The book of Genesis calls him the priest of God most high. He's referred to as the king of the city called Salem. In Hebrew, that's similar to Shalom, which means peace. And this is amazing. The whole letter of Hebrews, if you've been in our Bible study, shows exactly this. Abraham tithes to him. Now, throughout Scripture, if you tie it to someone else, that means they are greater than you. So Abraham recognizes all the way back in Genesis 14 that Melchizedek is greater than him. Anything up on this screen ring any bells with Jesus? There are so many. Jesus wins victory over his enemies. He is the true king of righteousness. What is the last thing he eats on planet Earth before he dies with his disciples? Bread and wine. He is called the great high priest of the church. I love that Jerusalem, where he is sacrificed, is just the later name for the same city of Salem. And we offer our tithes to him. Now, I, I know you may think, okay, I think he's making this parallel up, but it actually goes back a very long time. I want to show you this amazing artistic depiction. I'm going to move over here just to make uh, some points. If you go all the way to Sinai, where Moses received the law from God, you can go to a monastery called the Monastery of St. Catherine, and you'll see this icon in the monastery. This, this place was built 15 centuries ago. Okay, This is a depiction of Melchizedek and his priestly robes and his crown as king, and he's giving a blessing to Abraham. Now, what I love about this icon is that they put Jesus right in the middle. As if to say, the only way you can understand Genesis chapter 14 and the interaction between these two men is to know him. To understand these two, you've got to know Christ. Now, I, I zoomed into the picture and circled this just so you could see it. But there's a little, this depiction of this man bowing at the feet of Melchizedek. Now, what I love about this is this is probably a depiction of the guy who donated the money to paint this picture. Okay? <laughs> He's bowing at the feet of Melchizedek, but what I love about this, he must have had some type of love for this story in Genesis. But I love that even though he's bowing to Melchizedek, who is Melchizedek pointing to? All the way up to Jesus, right? This story is pointing us to who Christ is. So I'm not making this parallel up. It's in the book of Hebrews. It's in Christian art throughout the centuries. It's to show that these patterns aren't, aren't just there as coincidences. The patterns between Jesus and Abraham are to show that he really is like his forefather, like father, like son. But he's also unlike his forefather because he's also like Melchizedek. He is greater than his forefather, Abraham. Okay, this last one, 
Uh, you may not believe me, that's okay. But I believe it and I'm going to share it with you. I think Jesus shows up in the story of Abraham in person. Okay? We read this story from Genesis chapter 18. I'm going to walk you through why I believe this. We read in verse 1. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw how many men? Three. Interesting. The Lord appeared, but Abraham sees three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. Whatever he saw in the Lord or these three men, he recognizes their greatness. But then Abraham says, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, singular, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. The Texas version of this is, y'all can wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so that you can be refreshed and then go on your way. Which is it? Is it you or is it y'all? Now, how much food does Abraham give them? I think the numbers matter. Quick, get how many? Three, say it's the finest flour, knead it and bake, break some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to his servant. And then he brought curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. Who in the world is visiting Abraham? Is it the Lord? Is it three men? Is it the Lord and two men? Who is it? We're not actually the first to wonder what in the world is going on here. A preacher and church father named Augustine pu puzzles over this passage. He says, okay, since it was three men, how would he address the Lord in the singular? Did he understand that one of them was the Lord and the others were the angels? Or did he perceive the Lord among the angels and choose to address the Lord instead of the angels? And yet how, if they are angels, is it necessary to refresh them with food? Right? I love that he's like, he's yelling in his office, angels don't eat curds. This doesn't make any sense. How do they eat they're angels, okay? We're not the first ones to puzzle over this. Church fathers have wondered who these visitors are. But sometimes, it's not theologians that have all the answers. Sometimes it's Christian art. This is a famous icon written by Andre Rublev. This is one of the most famous icons in church history. And he is inspired by this passage. Genesis 18 and the three visitors to Abraham. But I want you to notice that he might have given us some clues that he thinks more is going on here. Andre Rublev believed that this was a depiction of Christ. He's got this earthy red robe that symbolizes his humanity. The blue is his divine nature. The character on the left is God the Father. Both of these two characters are bowing their heads in, in respect of his glory. This is God the Holy Spirit wearing blue and green, the green symbolizing life. If you look above them, you'll see a house representing God the Father's authority, a tree representing the cross of Jesus Christ, a mountain representing the Holy Spirit, which is where God, God's people encounter him. And what are they all sitting around? They're sitting around a table, and the table is shaped like this cup. So they're, they're eating together, and guess what? There's an empty seat at the table. Maybe for Abraham, maybe for us. I think what he's saying is that this 
passage in Genesis 18, although very mysterious to us, is an image of the Trinity, the fact that Christians have always believed that God is both three and one, one being in three persons. So I think this art actually helps us understand this passage, and I really believe it, that one God, one Lord, showed up in three persons. Somehow, in some mysterious way that I can't articulate, the Son of God showed up. Now, even if you don't believe me, I think that God loves to put these breadcrumbs all over the, New, the Old Testament for his children to find and enjoy. How many of you know the story of Daniel's three friends in the fiery furnace? Can you raise your hand if you've heard that story before? Okay, when King Nebuchadnezzar throws his three friends in the fiery furnace, he looks inside. How many people does he see inside the fiery furnace? Four. And he says, there's a fourth person in there, and that person looks like a son of the gods. And so Christians have wondered, who is this fourth person? Is this the son of God? It's like when Joshua meets a man right before the battle of Jericho. He is called commander of the army of the Lord, but Joshua calls him my Lord. And he takes off his shoes because he's standing on holy ground. Who is this mysterious figure that keeps showing up all over the Old Testament? I think we have every reason to believe that the Son of God appeared incognito. He may not have been recognized, he may have been hidden, but he showed up anyways. Now I know your head might be spinning at this point. Mitch, are you saying Jesus can time travel? What are you talking about? Okay? If he was born 2,000 years ago, how can he appear 4,000 years ago? But remember his words. He says, before Abraham was, I am. He does not say, I was before Abraham. He uses the name of God. It means, I am not limited to a timeline. I don't have to use proper tenses like is or was or will be. I'm not stuck in the past, the present, or the future. I'm above all time and beyond all time. I can show up when I want, however I want. And I think in Genesis 18, the Son of God showed up in Abraham's life, which makes a lot more sense of this phrase. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. This is how Abraham saw the day of Jesus. He saw him through words and promises of prophecy. He saw him in patterns in his own life. And he saw it in person, hidden and incognito in Genesis 18. And, and what I'd encourage you to do, if you, just, if you take that thought about Genesis 18 even slightly seriously, go back to the Old Testament looking for Jesus. I promise you, you will find him. And you will be as happy as Abraham was 4,000 years ago. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, we are amazed that all the way back in the Old Testament, you were setting down breadcrumbs for us, showing that Christ was there. He was hinted at, prophesied about, prefigured all the way back in the beginning of this story. In the very first chapter of Genesis, we read about you, your word, and your spirit. We read about these 
three visitors. We know that angels in heaven sing holy, holy, holy three times. Father, there are all these incredible hints you've given us about who you really are, a glimpse of your triune nature. We can't fathom it. We can't grasp a timeline that makes sense. But we know that Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Father, we want to put our ultimate faith and trust in him. And it's encouraging this morning. I pray that you lift up our hearts and minds to him. To show us that he, he's what the entire Old Testament is about. All of the law and the prophets and writings are all about him. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.